Hi, my name is Yahav, and I was born and raised as an Israeli and as a Zionist. During the past few years, I've gone through the process of questioning the narrative I grew up with regarding this land we live in and the people living on it. This podcast is about voices of the disillusioned. Each episode is a one-on-one, heartfelt conversation with an activist who supports the Palestinian struggle, telling the story of the journey that led them to see through what they were taught. Each of these people has their own unique path that I believe anyone can learn from, whether you're a Palestinian or a Jew, living here or abroad, or just anyone who feels strongly about this subject. I hope you learn as much as I learned from them about how to build a better future for all people between the river and the sea. Just a quick announcement before we start. If you want to support this podcast and help me keep bringing you these stories, sign up to my Patreon, where you'll also get exclusive content and bonus episodes. Check out the link in the show notes to support this content. And thank you so much for all the supporters on Patreon who have already joined. It really means a lot to me. Idan Landau, or in Hebrew it's pronounced Lando, is a political blogger who began writing his blog, Do Not Die as a Fool, in 2008, where he has posted hundreds of pieces, many of them extensive investigative articles on the occupation, with emphasis on the topics of land confiscation and settlement expansion, military violence, social injustice, arms trade, Israel surveillance technology, media and propaganda, and many more. Idan has been jailed three times in military prison for refusing to serve in the reserve service of the IDF. He is also a professor of linguistics at Tel Aviv University and lives with his family in Tel Aviv. Hi, Dan. Hi, Ahav. <laughs> Welcome to my podcast. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. I introduced you at the end, like today you're a professor and you're a blogger. What did your childhood look like? Uh, what is your background? Where did your family come from? So it's a pretty standard, I think, middle class story of uh, Israeli Ashkenazi uh, Jews. Um, was brought up in uh, Ramat Gan, middle class, you know, Um, family, uh, me and my two sisters in the 70s. And I can say that I was um, preoccupied with issues of social justice also in high school, I think. I began to think about those things. But it wasn't a central theme in my life. So, you know, I was a standard teenager, very kind of literary brainy kind of uh, uh, person, you know, reading a lot. Um, Music was was very, very uh, important to me. Literature, that kind of stuff. But uh, politics actually became much more important by the end of the military service and then later in my 20s. I'm assuming this is a secular family, not a religious background. Very secular. Uh, both parents came from, um, you know, the, the Mapai circles. Just a quick note. Mapai is like the labor party in Israel and was in control right. for the first basically 30 years of yeah. this country. Yeah, so yeah, labor, but really centrist. Um, and, you know, my father in particular was very anti-religious um, to the extent that he did not want to attend my bar mitzvah and Knesset. Uh, so, so who organized it? <laughs> um, my mom, 
And oh, I, wow. I did this Aliyah uh, Torah. Actually, in hindsight, I shouldn't have because I, it meant nothing to me, but everybody did it back then, so I did it. But he wasn't there. I think by, by high school, both my parents and my mom uh, sort of shifted towards uh, Ratz, which is more kind of human rights, less socialist. Uh, but that was the background. Yeah. When you were around 15, uh, your parents started taking you to uh, protests. Right. So that was around the first Lebanon war. And there were many protests in, throughout the country, mostly uh, in Gushdan. In, in so I remember going... And I remember the the I remember Begin's name being being <laughs> uh, mentioned all the time as as the, the bad culprit. person, the bad yeah. person, the culprit. In 1977, after almost 30 years of control of the Labour Party, the Ashkenazi uh, hegemonic, uh, you know, David Ben Gurion leadership was replaced by Menachem Begin, who was the representative of like the more working class Mizrahi background uh, public. And this was like very historic. I also remember the demonstrations from the other side was begging supporters. So there was a, it was a very tense moment and in, in Israel history when, when the, the two camps, which were not just political, but also ethnic, you know, Ashkenazi and, and, and Mizrahim, um, clashed. But I remember my parents for the first time sort of not being shy to, to speak against the army and not or the institution not in a very radical way but in a way that sort of made it clear to me that wars are not sacred that was the first time i, I actually uh, understood that many people around me were disagreeing with the goals and the and the, how the, the goals of the war and how it was uh, conducted yeah and real sharon especially was the evil man back then yeah this is the 80s early 80s in the beginning of the 80s yeah 82 81 mm-hmm and you also read a lot when you were a teenager, which also influenced your like political vision. Right. So my reading was not theoretical. Uh, it was mostly through literature and works of uh, fiction. Uh, so, you know, if, if we were trying to trace the, my political thinking, it started with, with satirical pieces mostly. So Catch-22, I think. And... Um, other also movies, uh, Slaughterhouse Five, Vonnegut, um, those were my idols. So you know, I was reading satirical pieces written by people who experienced the horrors of war in Europe. Um, by the way, there is no analog in Hebrew literature of that. So people, many people, experienced the horrors of war, but nothing like that came in the literary scenes, uh, which is kind of interesting. So very, very few anti-war uh, novels in, in Hebrew. There are very few. Hanoch Levin in Israel actually was kind of outstanding in that. Uh, and so I think already at that age, I had this um, instinctive uh, opposition to, to power <laughs> and to what power tells us, and especially how easily governments can send young people to the battlefield for some obscure goals. So I had that notion in my head, not to take for granted that the sacrifice that we're asked to, to give to the state is justified, but to doubt it. I had, I had that idea in my head already, without knowing much about you know, concrete politics in Israel, and certainly not much about Palestinians and and you still chose to enlist in the army. Now we say chose, but back then, you know, nobody 
thought about it as a choice. You know, it's like default. This is what you do. Everybody does that. The choice is within the military service. Do you go to this role or that role? But conscientious objection was not something that I was even aware of, which is pretty much the same for many people today now. It's not something that is in the range of, of options that they know about. So there was there's no role model for them. And you talk to many refuseniks, and they, this is what they tell you. If we Had we known back then that there this this is an option that there is a community that it's it's possible and then we maybe we would have thought so this is not kind of it's just a description of what what the things are like for for you know israeli 18 years old uh, when they face the military service for many of them it's not a conceivable option for them not to go to the army so i did go and i even wanted to do I wanted to be an officer because I wanted to sort of do something a little bit a little bit more responsible than just a plain soldier that gets orders. But I knew that I will not serve more than the extra one year that you have to do as a sol- as a as an officer. So it was a four year service in the communication uh, uh, unit uh, where I had to sort of you know mildly operate my brain <laughs> to uh, run all sorts of uh, communication systems for the army, uh, and I did that without thinking much about the implica- political implications, but that came, at, I think, at the, at the last year of my service and certainly at the very first years of the, of the reserve service, I became politically aware. So mm. during, the, during the military service, I think this is, if you're not in touch with Palestinians, and I wasn't, I was, my unit was not in touch with them, it's very easy not to think about what the army is doing in Israel and what, what the purpose, what the grand purpose is, because... Like, for example, in my unit, we were preparing for big wars with armies and so on. That, that, so, you know, some, sounds legitimate. Uh, we weren't even in an, uh, anything that involved uh, offensive plans. We we're just on the defense. We we're just planning how to defend ourselves. So you, you didn't think about any, any dark sides of the military service. So that came later. It went together with the IDF. Israeli Defense Force. You really felt like you were part of a defense yes. force. Yeah, right, mm-hmm. yeah. But it's interesting that you were reading about war when you were a teenager, and you understood the anti-war sentiment, like the, the universal anti-war sentiment. Right. And then you enlisted in, in an army that you felt like it was preparing for a war that you were ready to participate in if needed. And it's right. like perceived as, no, this is something else. It's not like the Vietnam War. Right. It's not like that war. It's, it's yeah, because different. But back then, we, I didn't even realize that the history of Israel in terms of who initiated which, which war and what other options were on the table, I, I, I was not, you know, I was not aware of that, that many of the wars were avoidable. And, well, I knew, talked about the first Lebanon War. I knew about that war. Uh, but that war always seemed like an exception and everything else seemed like, you know, we were on defense. Even that is not correct. That we know about the Yom Kippur War. There were other options. We know about the Six Day War. Um, so, you know, you have to read a lot of revisionist history, um, which is completely outside of the curriculum of normal Israelis. So, um, this is where you know reading and teaching yourself comes in. And it's very important, but that's not something that you can do at eighteen year olds without without guidance. So, yeah, you you assume that they're they they know what they're doing. They're the, the army is put to good service. Um, but then there was the issue of the occupation. You know, so the occupation is not a war. It's some. It's a state that we we live in, and how is the army 
engaged in that? And is it really true that it's kind of a side job that we're doing or is it the main job? So I think the big shift for me was the realization that the army in practice is more and more oriented towards you know, maintaining the occupation and not defending against some imaginary army that would invade us from, I don't know, from Iraq. or So that's, that's what we're practically doing. Certainly today, but back it already started then because we're talking about the first intifada. So I, my military service was '89. So right when I was released, people were starting to be called to reserve service in the territories, even if they didn't even do this before in their actually compulsory service. So I was exposed more to that, and this is when I, you know, after a few years, I, I decided that no more. I don't. Yeah. Where were you exposed? Like, did you read in the newspaper that this intifada was going on and yeah. you saw what was going on and you were uh, like, I don't want to take part in that? Yeah, yeah. So you realize that people around you, especially those in battle units, of course, are, are being called to to do their service there. And what they're really doing is, you know, like policing or, you know, pressing demonstrations or... Uh, this was a time when Rabin actually instructed the army to break the arms and legs, you remember? So it was... Yeah. Uh, of the demonstrators. And this was kind of, you know, shocking. And since I was not in a battle unit, so uh, I was a communication officer, I was not even expected to to be in that role of, you know, directly facing demonstrators with a weapon. But I was like in the background. So we were called, my first actually, my, my first encounter was in the reserve service when I was called for 21 days or so. I was called to the Takumiya checkpoint. Uh, which is an entrance point for Palestinian workers uh, from the Hebron uh, area to the southern part of Israel. And my role there, me and other two other officers, was to be some sort of a go-between the actual entrance point and some offices that were hidden in this area where Shabak people were sitting. Okay, and these the, like caravans on the side. Caravans on the side, right in the back. Uh, so most of the workers would just go through the checkpoint. You know, they would have their IDs checked, and you know, they were just being cleared and and get inside. And we were uh, asked to sort of stand there and watch those that come in. And if we think that somebody might fit what the Shabak needs, just you know, call upon them and, and say, you know, can you please come with me? And then they would come to the caravan at the back you know, wait for a few minutes and then be called inside and then be interviewed or whatever it was. We were never present. We were just the go-between, right? Like there was this buffer of you standing there after they already are cleared and can go yes, to work, yes. but you kind of cherry-pick We could pick them few. up, yeah. What, what, did, what were you told to choose? So to the, the, we were instructed, we were actually working for the Shabak there. So the Shabak interrogators were looking for collaborators. Uh, to recruit them, new collaborators. So we were the source of the manpower. So we, we and we were instructed to look for young people who look educated, not very miserable. Just bring them to to an interview. And this was kind of you saw how the occupation works on the ground. Uh, so we were not allowed in, of course, but we could hear sometimes voices rising from the inside. Occasionally, we would hear uh, the interrogator yelling, and then we would see the person, the Palestinian person, kind of going out of this uh, session where that could have could have been just five or ten minutes sometimes, quite shaken. So you see that they've been through some kind of a 
emotional pressure. You know, later I read about what's going on in those um, interviews. So, you know, it, it is extortion. They're, they're really coercing them into collaboration by using all kinds of... Like uh, blackmail. Blackmailing personal information, which, has to, which, which could be related to anything that those people want done or wants not to be known want not to be known. So that person, for example, might have a medical condition or his father has a medical condition and like cancer, and they can only be treated inside Israel, but in order to be let in Israel, they need a permit. So the permit system is a very powerful system of blackmailing. And it's been, you know, one of the main tools that Shabak is using in order to, 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 to recruit collaborators. We'll let you in, we'll let your relatives in, if you just, you know, give us information that we need. Uh, many people refuse. Many people cannot really refuse. And then there was there was this blackmailing on that's based on um, sexual orientation. So you know people who are homosexual that don't want their that to be disclosed because in Palestinian society this is a very serious issue. So they're using all that, and so we could. And sometimes we would hear that the conversation would go very smoothly, and sometimes we would hear that it would go very uh, badly. And I also remember conversations myself with the Shabak people there that were kind of shocking to me how manipulative they are. You would see you would see that you're talking to a person that is really well trained in, you know, getting what they want out of people. Even if you would just talk to a normal person uh, that not not as part of their job. Really very manipulative person people. So by the end of those 20 21 days I sort of understood that I don't want to be part of that system at all in any function. Not in the territories, not at the border, not at the checkpoint, not even in the background, allowing this to go on while I'm looking aside. So that was a turning point. And I don't really remember at what age it was. It was the first time I was actually called for a reserve service, which was not in my unit. It was just, you know, to operate for Shabak. And then I said, for the, from that point on, I said, when I, whenever I was called, I, I refused. So this is the 90s. We're talking about the 90s. So I did a few, I was called to reserve service and I did a few times in the reserve service without having anything to do with the Palestinians, which I'm not proud of because it was still going on, um, but I didn't have to face it. And then the first time I had to face it, I realized that I can't really do this anymore. And by then my political understanding was sort of made it very easy for me to come to that conclusion. So I was not, there was no... There was no clash. It was like, ah, that's the right thing, right? All those abstract notions of justice and um, equality, and I know more about the Israeli wars, and I know more about what's going on in Turkey. So all of that knowledge that I acquired, and now I'm asked, and this is the, the, the actual practice that is going on there. So, you know, I have to sort of combine them. And this is... You know, it's no, it's no dramatic moment. You know, if you talk to people from Shavrim Shtika, their their experiences were much more dramatic, dramatic right? They actually entered, breaking the silence. You mean? Yeah, the turning points, the the actual, the actual experience that made them realize, oh, these are really human beings. You know, they sort of burst into a house in the middle of the night. They see those little children crying. Uh, they're wetting their their clothes. You know, they see the horror in front of them, and that's the turning point for them. But of course, you have to remember that for them, being in those units that actually do those things, uh, the indoctrination is much more severe. So, yeah. you know, the, the, in order to counter that, you need something something more severe. So you need to be shaken psychologically out of this uh, routine that you're part of in order to see the humans uh, at the other side. And for me, the whole process was easier 
Okay, so I didn't ha I didn't have to go through any trauma. I didn't have to face actual Palestinian suffering. But the the, the little that I saw, the glimpse that I saw, and the, and the shouts that I heard from the from the room, there was no there was no um, physical violence. It was only verbal abuse. I could hear verbal abuse. I could hear people uh, the, the interrogator swearing, and, but it was all part of the extortion. It was all it was all an act. And I, I came close to that dark system that I, I, I said like, I cannot can no longer do it. And that's exactly what my entire um, understanding up to that point should have led me to, to conclude. Something yeah. that had to happen. Yeah, it had to happen. Yeah, yeah. I think it really like uh, moves me what you said about telling you, you guys, the soldiers uh, in that buffer zone to look for the more well-educated looking uh, young mm -hmm. Palestinian men who who maybe seem like they have more of a chance at life and that they're not someone who has nothing to lose, right? There's something that right. has something to lose and because right. of that, we can use that, right. that thing that they have to lose. And I remember meeting Palestinians from the West Bank uh, initially and they were people that were like more, I guess you could say like me, mm -hmm. like more into like alternative scene, um, more educated, more worldly, and thinking to myself, wow, like, they're just like me. Like, these people are really cool. Like, they like the music that I like, and they and they introduce me to other things that I don't know about, like, on their side. And, wow, like, there's this whole scene over there that's happening, like, a few kilometers away, and I don't even know about it. And I started understanding that, you know, why should these people not have the opportunities that I have? I mean, they're kind of just like me. They have the same aspirations. They have the same mindset. They're what people call like like-minded, right? Yeah. And then later on, it led me to the understanding that, no, actually, it's not only these like cool hipster people that deserve rights and that deserve, you know, I, it sounds like in hindsight, I, I, I think like, wow, you were so stupid, I tell myself. But actually, it's like this process of thinking of like, actually, through the people that I felt were more like me, yeah. then... I realized that actually all the people, it doesn't even matter who they are and what they're, you know, what they're right. like, they all deserve rights. All the paths are legitimate, but it's yeah. a very natural path to follow, to first con con connect to people who are more similar to you and then to realize, oh, they're actually, they have families. And, and, and all their families are actually <laughs> maybe less like me, but they also deserve, exactly. That's, yeah. it, it is yeah. through their families, actually, that I first realized this. And what really shakes me is that these people Israelis would always tell me, you know, your friends, they're not, you know, the, they're not the representative. They're not like the, the average Palestinian. They're different. Like you can connect to them and you can, you can see their humanity because they're different. The rest are all, you know, terrorists. And these yeah, are, yeah. you just found the few that aren't, that are more educated. They're more worldly. Yeah. And why is this so disgusting? Because it's actually those people that you're talking about that were targeted and that were, you know, saw the opportunity to take away something from them and not the people that were uh, elevated and seen as maybe future leaders, yeah, I right? Think, I think also my, another reason that I speculated on back then was that the, the, it's very important that a collaborator would not be suspected by their immediate surroundings, that they are collaborating. And maybe there's a naive thought that only people, I guess some Palestinians might think that only people amongst us that are so poor and so miserable that have nothing to lose would actually go and collaborate. People that have, uh, because that's the worst, that's the worst thing you could do, betray your people. 
So why would anyone do that unless they're at the very bottom? And the Shabak people sort of understood, you know, maybe we shouldn't go for those people that are at the very bottom, and then they would be less uh, suspicious. And that's also might be one another reason. There's there's even something more destructive in that um, beyond like the personal level of those people's lives and those people's families' lives is that Israelis tend to say, well, where is the where is the Palestinian leadership, the people that we can actually have some kind of negotiation with, people that we can actually, you know, people that are more educated, more, you know, like-minded, more open-minded. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And then you see what, you know, there are those people, but what, how they're treated is that instead of, instead of kind of cultivating a relationship with those people that, quote unquote, the people that you can talk to that are more moderate, what they were doing was actually yeah. the opposite. They're destroying those people, yeah. destroying all chances of cultivating some kind of um, class of leadership, and then having a whole Palestinian people without any leadership because the, the people on the top are being repressed as well. Yeah. I think it's also one reason probably why universities and schools are, are a constant target of, of harassment by the Israeli occupation. So many students being arrested for, you know, social media posts and, you know, Birzet being invaded, other Al-Quds being invaded. Uh, and of course, you know, Hamas is present there. Hamas is a popular movement. But the reasons are very, very far removed from, you know, from uh, actual, from actual terrorist activity. activity. Yeah. yeah, those are people, you know, opinionated people. They talk for their people. They talk for the prisoners. Usually it's around the prisoners. Yeah. And they're, they're usually very, like, intellectual. Highly intellectual. Yeah. yeah, and that's not something that, of course, the occupier would want. I should also say that the occupier doesn't want that their own people, namely us Israelis, would be too, uh, too educated. Yeah. So it goes both ways. Educated people <laughs> are a danger. Uh, critical thinking is not something that any um, government you know, would encourage. Uh, uh, so critical thinking also in Israeli schools is you know, going down. Um, you look at the programs, you look at what they teach, what they don't teach. Uh, that's not something that they value. Uh, and of course, they can't really use the methods that they're using in the territories to oppress um, independent thinking, but they could set up the system in a way that would not encourage it. And I think that's exactly what we see in history lessons, in uh, civics. Civ civic. Yeah, yeah. definitely. It's true. It's like the, the, the methods are different, but the repression of critical thinking is it has the same goal. Yeah. And then by the by the age by the time they get to to be eighteen, you see those horrible, you know, TikTok movies, uh, TikTok clips from, from Israeli soldiers, you know, gleeing and, and <clears throat> joyfully about with with the ruins of Gaza behind them, because this is how they were educated. Extreme nationalism and so yeah, that's a different thing. But 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 uh, there, I've, I've written a lot about the Israeli education system. And I'm really worried about it, and I have two children. Uh, one of them already uh, out of that system; the other one is, and I'm really uh, very conscious of, of of what's going on there. Um, it's not good at all. So at this point, you were like in your early twenties. You had already done reserve service as an officer. Mm -hmm. And you were starting to realize this is what's going on. And eventually you reach the conclusion, I don't want to be part of this. Mm -hmm. So now what do you do the next time that you're summoned? Yeah, so a number of, time of, of times I refuse. And usually they treat officers more kindly and they let them off the hook if they can. So that really depends on the commander of the unit at that time. They, they keep changing every few years. But I should say one more thing about why I found it 
okay to go to the to to Miluim um, for a few years. We had a very nice group of people there that we really liked each other and and there is this social thing social bonding among among men usually, but now also women do uh, Miluim like which reserves is, which is really yeah reserve yeah, I should say reserve <laughs> <laughs> which is really uh. Uh, completely you know on a different level from ideology and people could be very left left-leaning but the the reserve for them is this escape where they can rejoin with older friends and return to more beautiful times in their own past so there's something nostalgic at the very at the very core of being called to reserve you're recreating a bonding that you may have lost in your current career or something and this is something that ve- is very appealing and I, I i sensed it at the very beginning of, of so for a few years between 20 and 25 i was doing this uh every year and we had lots of jokes and you know people that re- i really enjoyed being with so i remember being conscious of the fact that i'm now cutting ties with all those people for the rest of my life probably because i'm going to refuse and again, this was felt by me on a kind of mild level, but I think about all the combat units, uh, people people from Golani and Givati that have to do, go through this. They've been through life-threatening situations with those friends. These are their kind of the closest friends and so, for some of them. Refusing to, to, to serve in the army really is, is a social... Uh, to serve in the reserves, you In mean. the reserve army. It's a social, yeah, because if you refuse to enlist to begin with, then, yeah. then you don't have any friends yet there. But those that were kind of, those friends that you acquired through, during the service, and, and very often your best friends. And re, the refusal really means cutting ties with many of them. It's also kind of like, especially if it's combat, it's kind of this guilt I yeah. will let my friends go to the battlefield yeah. and yeah. endanger themselves, and I will stay in the comfort of my house in this wherever. This actually has been even tested uh, scientifically by psychologists that study the, the psychology of war and patriotism and, and dedication to, to the unit. And they uh, it, it comes up again and again that the, the main motivation, they're trying to break apart the motivations of soldiers. Why do they go to risk their lives? It's kind of a counterintuitive thing. Why do they do this? Is it patriotism? Is it that they're identified with the goals of the war? But it's always throughout the, you know every army and everywhere, it's always... Number one motivation is loyalty to the unit, to the smaller, to the smallest student, to your friends, not wanting to leave them by their own. And this loyalty, you even see this with people that are actually wounded on the battlefield in the hospital. They want to return as soon as possible. They don't even want their, their treatment to, to end. They, ha- they feel guilty, okay? We cannot really leave our friends behind there uh, while we're here. So people were always wondering, why not, from the outside, why not, why don't we see more Israelis refusing? Because on one level, many Israelis do feel that it's very, very bad, the occupation. But at the psychological level, this bonding is so strong in Israeli society that it's really hard to break. And, and, and I think the only way to overcome this is to create equally rewarding bonds for those who do refuse. So not to let them to be left in the void without friends, without anyone that understands their decision, because there are, they are going to lose you know, friends. But they're also friends who that they can acquire this way, you know, Israelis and Palestinians that share their views, share their thinking, and 
for many Israelis, you know, as especially those the younger ones that refuse at, at an early stage, this is it's it's a turning point in their life. So it really means the beginning of you know some sort of uh, activist life. Where they could they would form new connections with people in activist groups and so on. So and that could also be very uh, rewarding. So I don't think Israelis should be sort of confined to find their closest friends just. Through the military on service. the back of Palestinians, right? There, yeah. there are there, there must be other ways to f- to, form to form bonding, better. yeah, form without without meaningful relationships, yeah. yeah, that that would not necessitate you know the oppression of other people, yeah, yeah, definitely. And you discovered all this when you were in your first imprisonment, when you decided I'm going to refuse. Now you were. You were yeah, I was, I was there with a, a bunch of uh, nice people that also refused. That was the second Intifada, 2001. So a bunch of us were in the same room and we shared, you know, our views and everything. So that was a nice experience. But of course, I I, I was prepared already to that. So it wasn't that I, it wasn't like, you know, we knew, I didn't know that they're going to be there <laughs> beforehand. So, but they became kind of friends. And um, so walk me through it. You decide, you get called for reserves. Mm-hmm. During the second intifada, for the first time, you are like, I'm not going to do this. I'm yes. willing to go to prison. Yeah. What happens next? So the commander of the unit uh, puts you on trial and, you know, you get two weeks on jail, on jail and they just take you. And um, you're taken to Atlit, the prison six near, near Atlit, where they put both. So the, the, it's... it's, it's uh, uh, it's where they keep both the reserve soldiers and the officers. I was both an officer and on reserve, but even if you're just an officer in um, your regular service, you would be there. And that's the better prison because Kele Arba, which is, I think, in Srifin, is worse. So you get a better treatment, uh, but it's still prison, you know, very small cells, very strict routine. Uh, so they wake you up at 5.30 or 6, they count you two or three, four times a day, and there's no activity at all, so you're really bored. Um you have to come with some sort of have, find some way to to occupy yourself, um, and you're hungry. <laughs> There's not enough food. I remember, uh, but it's other than that, it's 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 not a terrible. There is no abuse There's because no you're abuse. an officer, so they treat you yeah. better than the regular yeah. soldiers in yeah. prison. There is no abuse, no verbal abuse, and no other. It's just like you know, a shitty place to be. You you sleep on you know uncomfortable bed. You're hungry, um, but you know it's just for two weeks. So yeah. It's it's a worth it's a worth price to pay I think. <laughs> and you met other officers that refused right. to be in reserve duty yes. when you were there. Yeah, yeah. But you formed like you were talking about this kind of alternative bond that yeah. you could form. Was that something yeah. that you found there? Yeah, and for me it was more interesting to actually talk to people who were in jail for, not for those reasons. Like not for refusing, but for. Yeah. Uh, other reasons. Something that they did during their yeah, service. Yeah, it's called defection, where they they don't they don't show up when they're called, and they just show, if you if you don't show up for service for whatever reason, then you would put in jail. Mm-hmm. So yeah, personal problems, issues, just you know, they simply didn't fit. And it was interesting for me to talk to them because they were much, and this is something that comes up again and again in testimonies of refuseniks that came back from jail. People in jail are much le- much less judgmental than people outside jail about our decision. So they they hear what we have to say. So these are people who are in jail for different reasons, yeah. not for refusing, uh-huh. and then you start having this conversation, kind of conversation with, them, with them. And they totally understand, well, they might disagree, but they're not judgmental. Um, because they are also suffering from the system 
they're also being stigmatized. They all they also didn't fit. Uh, they can perfectly understand outsiders that don't fit for different reasons. And the prison is the great equalizer. So mm-hmm. every, we're all equal in some in some sense. And you know, personally, I also think that most of those people should not really be in jail. They're not. They're not felons. They they didn't commit crimes. They're just. They just didn't fit the system. The, the army um, insists on enlisting people that don't fit. Uh, so it's it was more interesting to talk to them than to actually people that sort of agree with me on everything. <laughs> yeah. So what you're saying is like the first imprisonment was like a formative experience where you kind of sharpened your political views even more um that wasn't no i i have to say as i said my political views were already sharp enough before that that was i i should have gone to jail earlier that's this is what i think because my consciousness was already there it's just that my practice um, was lagging so if my practice was synchronized with my thinking then it, it would have happened earlier so it, there was no ideological sort of shock to me there or or um rethinking i was already well baked <laughs> and did you get any backlash from people outside like your family your friends um people from the unit well the first time was even reported in the in the arts uh and, in the newspaper yeah and yeah i got some backlash from I guess students or people that didn't like that, but also I got a lot of support, so there was some visibility to that. I was the thirteenth uh, refuseniks, refuseniks in the. They they still counted them in the second intifada. So at the very beginning, they actually reported every one of them. So I was at the stage that they reported everyone. I don't know how many altogether there were, but there was a small piece. Maybe also because I was in university, and there were letters. Uh, sent from from my colleagues abroad, uh, also on the second or third time. And now I, I, I they're they got all mixed up. Who are your colleagues abroad? Like from uh, uh, linguists, yeah, linguists from from the linguistics community, yeah. That supported you, yeah. yeah. So you were you were not. This was not like dramatic for you. This whole situation, no, your, it was your not. fate, your name being in, on the newspaper and coming out of prison. It was just like you were ready for all of this? Yes, yes. How did you know what was going to happen? Did you have some kind of support from some kind of organization? Or? You talk to Yash Gvul. They have experience. Uh, they tell you what's, uh, what to expect. And who, who are Yash Gvul? Explain to uh, people who don't know. That's the Israeli um, uh, human rights groups that, that was formed during the First Lebanon War from those people who refused there. And they, it kept on going with uh, you know, advice and uh, support for, for soldiers that decide not to go to the army. So there was kind of a network that did yes. give some kind of support yeah. for whoever needed it. Yeah, I was in touch with them and but but honestly, you know, emotionally I didn't I didn't need that much because I knew that I was doing the right thing already. It's uh, so different to be like 24, 25 years old and already a student with some kind of like, you know, yeah. self-worth. I'm in the ling- linguist community right, than right. like when you're 17, 18 and you have to just like, okay, this is going to be my adult life for now and now I have to like handle all of this. Yeah. It's it's, so it's very different. Those um Young people, eighteen-year-olds, uh, I admire them because they even, of course, they pay a higher. I mean, they 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 sit for four or five months usually, and that completely changes their lives. But but you know, also their lives are not there yet. So it's actually it's it's a much they influence their lives in a much more meaningful way than I did. Uh, for me, it was more evolutionary. But you know, everyone follows their their path. It's okay. <laughs> in what way was it revolutionary? Evolutionary meant. So oh. for me, it was more gradual. 
because it started with reading, with looking at people around me, with much more gradual. And then you were also jailed two other times. Two other times. So first time was two weeks, second time was two weeks, the last time was one week, the last time was when I was 44. Wow. One year before my official release from reserve service, uh, I was the oldest prisoner in jail, I think. Uh, and it was right during Pesach, so uh, I actually asked for a favor from the commander not to jail me in Pesach so that I would be able to be in my, with my family, and they for agreed. For the holiday. Yeah. yeah, but that was kind of absurd, and I was also well, only me and one other person there in jail, so one week by myself with my books. And that time, I think, was also... Yes, that was a time when the university, I sort of clashed with my university, that was Ben-Gurion University, uh, before my current position, which is in Tel Aviv. I clashed with the university that decided um, to punish me by deducting my salary, so a quarter of my salary. Because uh, why, why would they deduct your salary because well, you sat in prison? It all started with Im Tirtzu. Im Tirtzu, should I explain what that, what that is? Yeah. Uh, you should explain what that mm-hmm. is. <laughs> Im Tirtzu is basically a right-wing movement organization that uh, is very much supportive of uh, the military and uh, what the military does. And they're very active in universities. Um, they have like a branch in each university. Uh, actually, I remember them when, when I was a student as well. Um, yeah, basically they, they persecuting try to... Persecuting and snitching. Yeah, that's what they're doing best. Yeah, they're like persecuting, persecuting the, <laughs> the more like left-leaning students and um, professors and as well. Yeah, yeah, there was a time that they would actually record classes and then would shame on, on social media people that had said things that, you know, God forbid, uh, standing for Palestinian rights. So they were, and they were also, they, they, they were also very uh, keen on, on sending letters. Uh, so when I was jailed, I think they sent a letter to the president. So this is how this completely minor incident that I was missing a week from work came to be known by the university authorities. So this is when they decided, and I think that was unprecedented. People got jailed before uh, from the faculty. I'm not the only leftist there. Uh, the only, that was the first time that they actually, they, they punished somebody from on their salary, yeah. Oh, so it started with Im Tirtzu. It's interesting because when I Googled your name in Hebrew, I think one of the first uh, results were this kind of database of, uh, it's called the Hakeret Amartze. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. this database of Im Tirtzu where they say, these are the, you know, traitor faculty from the universities. And then they have like a little blurb about each of you. To, it's like, pathetic. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's pathetic. They know nothing about my real activity. They sort of pick your names from, from petitions, from stuff like that. Uh, you could see that they haven't even actually read anything from my blog because things I say there are much more you know, serious and, you know, what they would just pick up from news. Um, it's pathetic. Their research uh, um, department is really very uh, pathetic. <laughs> As a researcher, you're yeah. <laughs> very <laughs> interesting. Um, yeah, it's, but it's, uh, but still it kind of, it feels like ostracizing, like to see your name on like this blacklist or are you proud of it? Like, what do you feel when you see this I, kind of I'm, stuff? Because they're so pathetic, I'm not even proud of it, you know? So they're not, they don't deserve our attention. That's that's what I think. Mm. The more attention we, the more attention we give them, the more we make of them, which they don't really deserve. So we could just go on, yeah, ignore <laughs> <Okay>. them. <laughs> so the university did actually comply and decide yeah. to, you know, cut your salary down. What yeah. was that about? 
Um, I felt really bad about it, and then I announced, that was many years ago, that was 2011, and then I announced officially, this is not my home, uh, so I'll, I'll do my best to actually find a different place. It wasn't easy in Israel, it's a small world, but I, you know, that was the root of my reasons to want to to move to a different department, and I did it last year, to, to this year actually, to Tel Aviv University. Um, but I have to say that the kind of the, the reaction within the university was kind of mixed. There were people behind me, the union was behind me, up to the point when it actually meant, you know, really standing up against the, the management, and, we, and then they backed up. So they didn't really uh, do anything about the deduction. So you could see how fascism works. You know, intimidation, labeling, uh, shaming, and, you know, people constantly having to prove their patriotism, constantly having to prove that they're loyal to some, you know, national national uh, goal, or people just wanting not to be part of that in my t actual department. So that was kind of a nice uh, laboratory experiment to see, to see how people behave in situations that are not really terrible for them, but they would not do what they can in order to stop those processes. Those processes are going on all the time. Their main victims are Palestinian students, Arab students in Israeli universities, especially in times of wars like that. They're being um, constantly yeah. watched and persecuted and, and complaints about them. It's not just MTO2, it's just their fellow students are doing that. You know? yeah. For, um, yeah. It used to be, I think, more of an initiative of like these branches of you know student organizations, but now it's just, you know, the... Yeah. Average Israeli student in a class with a Palestinian student seeing an Instagram story with a Palestinian flag and being like, oh, yeah. he's a Hamas supporter. So we're all, they're all kind of soldiers. All those Zionists are really soldiers on leaf all the time, uh, with or without uniforms, and they're always on the guard. Is there somebody around me that is you know, identifying with the Palestinians? And then they should be reported. And you know what's really ironic is that now, recently, through, uh, throughout this war that we're experiencing right now, Israeli students have been like telling on uh, Palestinian students um, for you know kind of social media content, sympathizing with Gaza or anything like that. And then a friend of mine who's actually a student in Tel Aviv University was telling me that the opposite also happened. So a bunch of Palestinian students went to the to the um, management mm -hmm. and said look there's a israeli student publishing like incitement like real incitement like death to all arabs and stuff like that on social media during the war and the university while using these like disciplinary measures for the palestinian students when confronted with an actual like real incitement from an israeli student mm -hmm. they told them go to the police mm. We're not going to handle this. This is actually criminal. Go to the police, which is so ironic because it tells you the whole story about if it was that dangerous and really criminal when it comes to the Palestinians, would they also say go to the police? You know, like it's just it's it's such it's so telling about this situation and how how imbalanced it is. Right. Yes. Yes. I totally agree. It's um, very depressing. So there's something also heightened um, consciousness of how we are perceived and are we perceived uh, patriotic enough? So on every level, students, the management, are we perceived as patriotic enough? Are we 
not by any chance uh, perceived as sympathizing with Palestinians. And you know, sympathizing with Palestinians doesn't mean sympathizing with terrorists. It's just like it's been it's been that's what it's become. It's become like that, yeah, but yeah. just just you know, of course, if you're a Palestinian, you're going to sympathize with your people, just like we feel very upset if there's some anti-Semitic incident, you know, in uh, Belgium. Uh, that's something that we cannot really understand, Israeli. So, so, so there's a lot of maybe this is also part of social media atmosphere, but people have to showcase their their patriotism. They have to sort of actively engage in acts that show how patriotic they are. So what you're it's saying not enough is, just to say it, but you have to point to traitors. Yeah, so that what you're saying is people don't necessarily feel like they're threatened by, you know, a post with a Palestinian flag, or they don't necessarily feel that it's that wrong that that person has to, like, lose their job or be expelled from university, but they know that it's on them to prove how patriotic they are through... Snitching yeah. on someone else. Yeah, and yeah, and 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 then many of them don't even realize that this can actually end up in that person being dismissed or being fired. It's they just want to shame them, and then yeah, and and the shaming culture, and you know, we know where it came from. So you know, shaming culture, so sort of combined with patriotism, it's horrible. Wow. I can also say another thing that I think I I I made it. One of the donors of the university, um, from from the UK. Uh, was very upset about that, and that donor actually, I sort of, I'm associate, I, I know them fr fr through academic circles, so they threatened the university with stopping their donation because the university did that to me. Oh, yeah, but that, unfortunately, that wasn't a very big donation. So the donation <laughs> went to you know, I think students for for fellowships for for students, uh, not. For high tech, not for building uh, buildings and so on. So I think that Rivka Kami, who was the president back then, she was a culprit. She was the one that actually approved it, and I also talked to her about my, about the incident. She said, "Okay, go ahead." So it was more important to her to to stand to show her patriotism. Yeah, be, because and I think if if the donor was actually much heavier, maybe the decision would have been different. Anyway, my conversation with her at the time. I remember one thing she said to me, which was really horrible. Horrible. Uh, she she tried to convince me that it's not about a political uh, thing at all. <laughs> so you know the story, the, the the official story of the university was that we don't get reimbursed by the army for your time in jail as we do for any other regular service. So your salary comes from the army and they reimburse us. You missed out a week. We have we you know the department collapsed. <laughs> we, we have to compensate ourselves financially. We couldn't, so we take it from your salary, and now we're good. Uh, <laughs> that was bullshit, right? Um, and my whole in the letter that I wrote, actually, and I and I distributed it to the whole community of of the faculty. I said uh, I was punished once by the army, which is fair enough. I knew that I was going to be punished. It's completely unfair that I would be punished by, by my employer for my political decision, which was not even connected to my work. I didn't. I don't use my work as a platform to disseminate my views. Uh, so that was, you know, this is fascism. This is how fascism looks like. You know, you have to. Be constantly, uh, constantly to to prove that you're uh, not not a traitor. And her, I think, by the end of the conversation we had, Rivka Kami sort of gave up on this 
false excuse. And she said, look, you have to be proud of yourself that you paid a double price for your ideology. Right? Now she's on your side. Now she's on your side, like politically. Yeah, and she's yeah, saying, yeah. she's saying, oh, we gave, <laughs> we gave you street cred because we made the Yeah, you want to be a martyr, right? I, I don't want to be a martyr. I, I you know, I want to make a point. That's so weird. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And when did you start writing your blog? Was this after being imprisoned? A few years. Um, so I started in 2008. A few years before that, so the mid, so in the first, uh, I guess, 2005 or six, I was writing uh, pieces for Ynet. Uh, Which is a very prominent Israeli newspaper. Yeah. Um, about uh, you know political analysis, but they would, and that was kind of not 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 regular. Uh, but I realized two things. First thing, I didn't like it that they they're very popular, but they they wouldn't pay, which I didn't like. And the second thing was that I realized that writing op-eds is not the best channel through which I can actually influence readers, and it's a genre that I should abandon uh, uh, soon. So I wanted to go deeper. I wanted to talk more about facts. And I realized that the platform of writing in the web, which allows you to link articles, is something that I should use more. And then I also realized that any, any um, commercial uh, site would not allow you to put links to competitors. So if I oh. want to publish on Ynet and link to an article in Haaretz or vice versa, that would not work. So, mm. and I needed to do that because, you know, when I Google and when I search, I do my research, I just need to, you know, I would just link to the best source that I have. So I needed that freedom. So I started writing the blog. And yeah, the blog, you do have a lot of hyperlinks in your blog posts. That's the, that, that's that was like the main the, thing. Yeah. It wasn't at the very beginning. Uh, so at the very beginning, I would write shorter pieces. The, we're talking about 2008, June, July, August, um, about all sorts of things, not just politics, but also politics, culture, music, uh, I don't know, philosophy, linguistics. Um, and then came uh, Castled. So Castled operation. The first... Uh, what Israelis call Operation in Gaza. Yeah. 2008. Yeah, right? and the end of 2008, so December. Yeah. So about half a year after I started my blog, and then immediately I was kind of sucked into that because I realized the gap between what I'm told by the media and what actually happens on the ground as we get reports from journalists and from human rights organizations. It's actually very different from the current co conflicts that I should explain. Back then, there were many more people on the ground than they are now in Gaza, because Gaza now is a disaster zone. Nobody can actually enter there, and there are very few journalists in there. And many of them are associated, in our eyes, with the enemy. So Al Jazeera and Palestinian news agencies, but there are hardly any Western journalists there at all. That was not the situation in the previous cycles. Uh, and there were also NGO people. You know, B'Tselem was there, and you know, Amnesty was there. They're not in Gaza now. Uh, so... There were constant sources of reliable, you know, neutral uh, reports that were ignored and not used by Israeli media. And I started you know, collecting all that and giving a picture that was very different from the official picture. So I, I and then I saw, and you need all the links, you need to read, you need to synthesize. So I said, oh, I can do that. I can use my academic training. I can write in a way which is not academic uh, about things that are really important. Uh, and I realized this is something that was missing. And back then, there were one or two more bloggers in Israel that did the same kind of job. I should mention them by name. They're, they deserve it. So the first one was um, Eyal Klein. He's now uh, 
in, in the UK, so he left Israel. And the other one was the late Yossi Gurvitz, mm, uh, yeah. who was writing shorter pieces, but also of the, of the, with the same kind of um, attitude. So just the three of us. Um, and we felt that it, we're really doing something that is, that is needed, something that, that, that is not there in the media. So Because that's how the blog started. You were writing in Hebrew about things that Hebrew readers wouldn't be able to reach otherwise. But you weren't creating the information from scratch. No. You were kind of collecting the information from media sources, from right. Israeli media right, or, right. or from human rights organizations, but like information usually in Hebrew, right? And right. then kind of like putting it together yeah. and doing these compilations and then like explaining the situation in pretty accessible language. This is like such a big service. If you know how Israeli really media I, works. I, I realized right away something very, very basic, which is there is a very big difference between information and knowledge. So especially in the information age. So we're inundated. We're, we're swamped by, by, by information. Uh, and that just reduces our understanding. Exactly. <laughs> uh, as opposed to the times where we were just fed by two or three channels, one major newspaper, and you, would, you, you could say back then this was all propaganda, but at least we had a stable kind of grip on what happens. Now, people don't know what's happening. So, and, and, and this has been going on for a while. So I didn't do any independent research. It was all kind of secondary research. Using most of what I used was actually Israeli sources, Israeli newspapers. And human rights organizations. Yeah. Uh, but much of that was newspapers, much of what was the, the second to last paragraph in a piece that appeared in Ynet or in Aretz, and nobody really paid attention to that. So I would read carefully stuff, and then I would actually say, look, if you put that together with that, that you get a very different picture. So the, 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 the level of filtering and framing and, and distortion that the media is involved with, sometimes not even consciously, but sometimes consciously, is so immense And this is something that we really need, uh, literacy uh, in, in media, reading, understanding media. I think it should be taught in high school, literacy, you know, so yeah. media literacy, how to actually decipher, decipher news. Yeah, but as we've said, um, critical thinking, which is what uh, that leads to, is not that something that we want to encourage would, here. That no government would, would initiate this kind of uh, yeah. uh, studies, but we need it at the very basic, not, not, not media studies in the university. I really mean, you know, You know, how to read kids, the media kids that start read the news i don't know age 13 and 14 should already be taught how to distinguish how to distinguish you know headline byline how to distinguish different sources what is what framing yeah. yeah so framing is really important so and and you see that uh i could immediately see that this was a service that people wanted because these were really long pieces much longer than what you would have in the news. And still people would say, we read it, we, we want more, more of that. Yeah, there were still those that complained, okay, why, why can't you write any shorter pieces? <laughs> you want a shorter piece, you know, go to the news. You know, why, <laughs> why, what do you want from me? I'm such a marginal voice. You know, why should I follow the, the, you know, the format that is so popular? I, I want to try something else. So. Yeah, but you're not marginal, actually. I think the last blog post that you wrote about the war in Gaza... The last one was, was really popular, but, you know, overall, I am marginal, I think, my, my, my opinions and my, my voices. So, so overall... Like, how many the, people would read your blog post? Well, 
let's start from the beginning. The beginning was very small, hundreds. It was in the hundreds. And then it started climbing, a few thousand. The, the peaks, you know, a, a popular post would be something around 5,000. I would say, whoa, that's really a lot of exposure. So, and then there were a few that were in the peak around uh, 17 or 20,000. These were the records, usually. For many years, I didn't even reach those numbers. And when I wrote uh, several pieces that were, you know, you, you'd sometimes put a lot of work into something, and then you would just see, you know, 800 views, and you're like, okay. <laughs> Although the numbers, I should say, um, we, shouldn't count, we shouldn't count everything by the numbers. And the reason is that it took me a while to see that some important people read me, some journalists and some kind of opinion decision makers. It actually took me a while to, to see that because sometimes I would read in an analysis in some newspaper something that sounded exactly like what I wrote a day before. Oh, wow. Or two days before, yeah. And occasionally I would even be contacted by, by journalists. So, so I would, I, so, it, and then, the reward is much greater because if you see your views being represented in mainstream media, even without credit, that doesn't really matter. It's, it's as long as you're sort of shifting the discourse to some so things that I sort of insisted on for many years becoming more and more mainstream. That's that's nice. But yeah, you, you were talking about the last one. So the last one was written after a long time of silence, which I, you know I, I don't write a lot in the blog anymore. And that reached, I think, this is almost now in the 50,000. Wow. 50,000. So 50,000 yeah. Hebrew speakers, yeah. which is probably most of them Jewish Israelis, read this. Um, Jewish, Jew, I don't know if Israelis, many of them are from abroad, but, <laughs> but, but lots of them, uh, yeah, lots of them follow the blog. And, and many, many of them are new readers. I got, I read responses from new readers. So that was nice. And this is one of the longest, if not the longest. Yeah, it's like 13,000 words. 13,000 words, yeah. I remember actually seeing a tweet on Twitter saying, I think it was like a few days after the war began and everybody was just, it was chaos and everybody was like confused and scared and angry and, and, and just everything was horrible. And I remember someone wrote, no matter what you do, just make sure to read Idan Landau <laughs> post about this war. Just uh -huh. like, I think he was even like, he was like, read Idan Landau, read Idan Landau. <laughs> He's like, he like, repeated it like for five different times. Like, and then I was like, oh, okay, I really have to read this. <laughs> and I had known about your blog. Actually, I learned about it from following you on Twitter, which you're also very active in. But I remember actually um, one of my guests on the podcast uh, mentioned you as someone who had very important influence on him, like shifting his uh, his views and mm -hmm. understanding what was going on here. And it's the guy that uh, does the graffiti of uh, Why Did I Enlist? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So I'm plugging in on a different episode, but right. I think that when he was like One saying, of my idols. <laughs> <laughs> so first of all, it's, it's mutual, just so you know. You're his idol, he's uh -huh. your idol. Very exciting. I like this kind of crossover, but uh, yeah, I think that a lot of people, so, if they want, if they're if they're willing to listen and to yeah. to research and to want to really understand what's going on here, not what they're being told, they they then have this source, which is what you provide, yeah. and it's so important. It's like I I I really appreciate it. 
So one goal of that is also to, to have it there. To, so it's kind of an archive of knowledge, political knowledge that I want to be there for long term, not just, you know, as they say about newspapers that you wrap fish with that the <laughs> other day. So some of those pieces really have a long shelf life because, because they, they talk about uh, a situation that has been going on for decades. And, and uh, even though the, some of the numbers are different, the, the basic analysis is still the same. And coming back to numbers, it's more important for me to actually influence you know, a small group of people that take up that topic. And this happened several times. So I, wrote, I write about something and then a group of activists uses that as a, as a platform, use that as like, you know, starting point for some activity that they're doing. Uh, and that's the most rewarding thing of all. So if I wrote about, um, I wrote about the Jordan Valley, like three or four long pieces about what's going on there with land, with water, um, with the Israeli settlements, which are not even perceived as settlements because they were put there by the labor party. Mm-hmm. Many of them are, you know, Moshavim, Kibbutzim, they're not coal settlements. But the exploitation there is, is, is of the worst kind. So here again, we find this gap with, you know, between the image or the self-image and, or the public image of those projects and what's actually happening on the ground. So it was important to me to actually write about it. And there was a group of activists that, you know, followed it up and he used that information. Or I wrote about at the very beginning of Sheikh Jarrah, one of the, I guess, the first political piece that I wrote was about Sheikh Jarrah oh, at really? the very beginning, yeah, in 2008. And I know that it served those people there that, that started working there. Or I wrote about something completely different. So I, I don't just write about Palestinians just to make a point. I had a long piece about the um, how bad the situation is in, in, the, educa- in, in the school system of Israel, how the, the crowdedness. So that the fact that we have, they have 40 plus pupils in a class like sardines, so it was something like sardines, and so so it's a very long piece, you know, analyzing why, what, what's the history of that? Why, why are we so behind the European standard and so on? And that was taken up by by the people that came came with those with those data to the to to the Knesset and argued oh, wow. for that cause. So and there are and and the gas. I wrote about the gas. It was a long long post about the the, the gas resources. Um, so it's like environmental education. Yeah. So things, things that like that, that involve, but it, but the, the the whole the common thread is that we citizens deserve more. The government cheats or the government hides or the government sort of serves, you know, narrow interests of, of a certain industry or a certain class or whatever it is that I'm, I'm looking at. And we, we deserve more. It's a democracy. At least we can voice our protest. So that, that was the, you know, people with dedication and time that were actually exposed to that used that. So, you know, this is what political writing should do. Uh, and this is what I didn't like about OPEDs. Uh, here is my opinion. <laughs> okay. We have thousands of opinions. So political knowledge should become a tool, should be something that people use to think and act, uh, which is also a reason why I never found it any, uh, I, 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 I never found any reason to actually put those pieces together in a book or publish it academically because that would sort of just remove it from the public arena. You want it to be there. You want it to be useful. You want the links to be useful. Be accessible. Yeah. So this is political writing. You know, I have an academic career. I don't need to have another academic career in, you know, occupation studies. This is not what I'm looking for. I want a guy that is like 17 or 18 to be able to write what I'm, to read what I'm writing and to be able to put it to practice in their own lives. 
and that happens and that's that's what it should you know that's that's what political writing should do i think you said this is a democracy but from your writing mm-hmm. <laughs> it sounds like you see that this is not really a democracy right it's a declared democracy what i mean by it's a democracy at least we're there, there are many of us that still have the privilege of saying what we think without fearing um, the consequences although yeah the range keeps uh, being narrowed down and permissible opinions are, are, are being uh, curbed but uh, we still have we're talking about Jewish white uh, people males have more have more uh, options so we should use them this is what I meant of course I know that the democracy here is a, a very uh, inaccurate term to what's happening in Israel but there are very de- different levels of, of freedom in Israel they're very very different populations so those of us that can can, can speak and can can influence others should do it um, it's always a challenge what's the best way to do it and you said that you what you find most effective is for like a 17 year old uh, teenager to read your blog and make decisions mm-hmm. uh, with that knowledge mm-hmm And you write a lot about uh, conscientious objection and, mm-hmm. and refusing to serve in the military and turning it into a political campaign and not just getting exempt from the army because there's a difference. So can you right. kind of talk about like what, what, what is it about this price that you pay sitting in prison that is different than just kind of dodging it somehow and making some kind of excuse um, or getting exempt uh, legally? In my view, Many of the ailments of Israeli society are rooted in the military service and are rooted in the central place that the military service has. So you know occasionally I would say we're really like a, a Spartan society where militarism is so is so um, dominant. So once you break that, if you if you break the hold, if you sort of challenge that, lots of good things would happen, I think, on very different things, not just in terms of our, attitude to Palestinians but also in terms of you know feminist goals for example or uh, thinking about social justice I don't think we can ever be a, a truly uh, just society when the army which is a source of so much I think you know um, economic inequality in Israel if you just think about this Jews versus Arabs the army is there and Arabs don't go to the Um, the army uh, that affects their life that affects their their employment possibilities that affects so many things there's a new bill now if you've read um, expanding an older bill that exempts uh, uh, soldiers that got released from the army from any tuition in the university so they don't have to pay anything for the study which is you know good enough they they contributed to the con- to the country okay what about those that are never that don't have a chance twenty percent of the population and They don't, they're not they're, they're not yeah. going to get get that privilege so the army has lots of repercussions in 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 life of course you know the the, the ubiquity of weapons people talk about that now yeah so I think if a person comes to resist the military survey at a very early stage in their life it's going to have a you know, radical implications for their thinking about so many different topics and It's, it's just because the how we live you know if I if I were to live in a different country where it's it wouldn't be the army but it would be some something else that is so dominant I would probably fight against that you know if I were if it was some kind of an environmental thing that sort of dominates our lives but this is where we live so we have to we have to focus on what really 
makes it so difficult for Israel to, for, for Israel to become a true uh, democracy. So that's why much of my writing is about the army in many, many different ways, not just the, the service, but also I, I wrote a lot about uh, the military industries and the military exports and how they are actually feeding into the preservation of the occupation by buying Israel diplomatic support from you know suspect regimes around the world and so on. So there's so many circles that are preserving this this uh, anomaly that we live in and resisting resisting the the, uh, the core resisting the importance resisting the centrality of I think the the military service is is a common thread that 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 you have to um, face. And it's not so much of like how powerful one person refusing to serve in the military and sitting in prison is, but more of how this affects their thinking and then later on can make them more of an activist right that right. knows you know has the political thinking needed to really make a change right so in that sense you're absolutely right I I, I don't view the the refusal to serve the army as a goal in itself and it was conceived as a goal I think 20 or 30 years ago when people were naive enough to think that the phenomenon would be so popular so as to make the army stop and rethink oh we can no longer you know <laughs> maintain the occupation with so many refuseniks that's that was a naive dream there would never be many in, in that many refuseniks like and it's are, always going to be a minority it's always going to be a tiny minority and many of many of those that actually refuse that what we call the gray zone of refusal uh sort of find a way not to go to the army and the army um you know, finds a way to to let to let them uh, do it because what's this gray zone let's talk so, about so like, people who are not uh ideologically explicit in saying we don't we're, we're against the occupation or or we pacifists and we don't we don't want to take part of that but people just say we, i don't fit i don't want to go to the army for different reasons for personal yeah. reasons personal for... psychological reasons uh i don't fit and the army um Sometimes you know the army found that you know not putting them in jail is is better for their purposes because then the phenomenon would not get coverage would not be perceived as a clash uh, and the army is more humane and of course they should do that but then on the other hand on, on the other hand the army keeps and the image is that it's a compulsory service it's not compulsory service so many populations are not there and and many people sort of get away with it and and It is compulsory when it comes to the ideological refusing. So there, the army does want to make a point. We, we would not allow you to challenge, but this is not about, it's not because we need those people. It's not about yeah, it's not anything. Like... So it's, it's really about, about teaching them a lesson and, and, and making the lesson known. But the army sort of realized that we, it's better to have this group as small as possible. So like contain it, not like blow yeah. it up, but more bury the stories. Yeah. So unless the person is really outspoken, If the person would not go to the media and inter be interviewed for example if they're just doing it privately uh, there are good chances that the army would, would, would not put them in jail so this is the difference between uh, 2001 the first time that you were refused yeah. as a, a reservist uh, officer and now which is a different situation the army is trying to like kind of leave that yeah quieter and I when you were hear. doing it they were like reporting it yeah, each yeah. one they were like counting yeah. them yeah Yeah. So you think they like, but even the but even the organizations of the left that were, the, I think there was a time maybe before that they thought it's going to be a mass movement, 
<laughs> it's never going to be a mass move. That's my kind of that's my disagreement. It's, I don't think it's going to be a mass movement. I think the importance of of this act is, as you said, in its dramatic effect on the person that undergoes it, and maybe the people that would be affected would be by talking like around. To, yeah. And, and the circles that, of this person. Yeah, yeah. it's um, you know it's the beginning of a life of activism in a way. So instead of seeing it as like the end game, as like I'm not going to go to the military, I'm going to sit in prison, and then you know I've done my I've done my part in ending the occupation. It's actually the opposite. It's just the beginning, and it's in it's, practice it, it is. Yeah, you cannot you cannot. There's no way back after you did that. I think <laughs> when you realize when you, when you pay the price and you realize. That the state did not really listen to your arguments, and 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 you're you're on your own. Then you're looking for friends, and you're looking for for people that have of, of the same opinion. And you you, it's such an important realization. I mean, Israeli Israel is 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 very strongly I should I say a collectivist society. We're all together, yachad and atzach, right? They're so saying uh, all the banners, yeah. the billboard signs now saying uh, we will win together. Yeah. So the word together is being constantly used not even before the war even yeah. before the war you just you know just watch television read the news there are newspaper headlines that use it all the time together 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 so this has been ingrained in us from very early age that we're all together in this and you know the other side is that of course because the world is against us so we should stick together yeah uh, so it works, the, uh, it works the, together. Ghetto, the, the, the ghetto mentality yeah so we're all we should all stick together because otherwise everybody's going to destroy us yeah. And a big part of this together is the, the military. So just being able to tell yourself as a young person, I can exist. <laughs> My life can be meaningful if I'm not together with on every single point with this society. It's, there's nothing natural about it. It's a matter of choice. We just we just don't realize it's a matter of choice. We just like flow with the stream. Yeah. And I can find other communities of solidarity or other people that think like me. And I don't really have to always think of myself as part of uh, the tribe of Jews in Israel. There are other tribes. I don't say, you know, walk away from that tribe, but there are other tribes. <laughs> so you're saying now that someone feels alone by, you know, taking this, taking this uh, step of refusing and then kind of crossing the line, they don't, ha first of all, they don't have to leave their own tribe, but they can find solidarity with other people who have either done the same thing or Palestinians who yes. obviously can feel more comfortable to connect with that person because yeah. of their political stance. Yeah. And, and you're saying this is a source of uh, support and also a source of togetherness mm -hmm. that doesn't have to always come from the same source. Right. There's mm -hmm. a, another aspect of that I think we should mention, which is um, men versus women, because mm -hmm. that's another kind of collective identity that is that is really very, very important to us from very early age. And this is also something that you need to challenge. In Israel, you know, masculinity, the, the, the relation between masculinity and, and military and militarism. Um, so I remember for myself, you know, resisting the, resisting that part of my identity that was militaristic was also resisting part of it that were masculine in a way. Masculine, I mean, in the, in the sense of the cultural mm -hmm. concept of what it what it means to be a man in Israel. It means to be, you know, strong, to, to be uh, uh, carry arms. It it means to be threatening, and it also so it has lots of implications. So, when you have to, I think, again, facing your role as a soldier is also facing your role as a man, or facing 
the role that is imposed on you as a man. And you have to start thinking, do I want to fulfill all those functions? Can I actually shape my own identity in a way that doesn't really align with those categories so easily? They're not God-given. The meaning of being a man or, or the meaning of masculinity sort of shifts from one time to the other, one place to the other. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is that people should be more autonomous in how they and feel that they have the autonomy, know that they have it in shaping their affinities or, or creating their connections with, with other communities around them. And just don't take for granted that the one community that you were told you're part of and there's no other community, um, that's that's going to be true for the rest of your lives. Uh, so there's so, so much depends on that, on, on being able to see through. And um, to me, I don't know why, but I was just like born like that. I never took it for granted that that the, this kind of identity or that kind of identity is something that I should just take for granted. I was thinking that, you know, I was thought about identity is something that gives us power, support, times of um, times of um, need, but it, it's also a confinement. And I was always concerned about the confinement part. That that you know it doesn't. I can't really see the other the other people that are not part of this group right now because I'm told that they're not in my group. So so this is something that that connects, I think, to the to this whole discussion. Thank you, Idan, for this such interesting and insightful conversation, and uh, for everything that you do. And I want to invite anyone who's listening, if you want to hear more about what's happening right now and uh, you know the current situation, it's like a kind of more open conversation about, uh, about Gaza, to go to my Patreon and you can hear the extra bonus episode there. And if you want to support the podcast, then you're invited to go to my Patreon. You can find the link in the show notes. You can get exclusive content there and help me keep bringing this to awareness and keep creating this content. So thank you so much for all the people that are already supporting. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. This is a really big part of, uh, you know, helping me do this more and more. And if you don't want to join the Patreon, but you still want to support the podcast somehow, then you're welcome to follow on whatever streaming platform you're listening to this through. Rate it five stars. It'll help it get to more ears and get more exposure. So thank you very much for uh, all your support and all your feedback uh, and everyone just listening. Thank you, Idan. Thank you. <laughs>